One of the most helpful things that the Bible does for us is when it tells us stories from an eternal perspective. It tells us what's going on behind the scenes oftentimes in various ways. Sometimes an Old Testament story tells us of unspoken, hidden thoughts. Sometimes an action in the Old Testament story tells us what God thinks of us. The, the narrator will say, and this thing that Saul did displeased the Lord. That's an insight into a hidden reality. Sometimes we're told of private conversations between two people, behind closed doors, sometimes even between God and his prophet. We're given a behind-the-scenes look into reality. It's multidimensional. It's actually hard to write stories like that without ruining the storytelling, without losing some of the suspense. Think about it. When you're about to begin a new novel or you've just got a new movie in from Netflix and you tell a friend you're going to watch it tonight, you don't want them to tell you how it ends, right? You don't want to know how it ends. That's part of the whole point of reading the book or watching the movie. But the Bible tells us stories full of suspense and drama and intrigue. It pulls us along hook by hook. And yet it doesn't too easily let us forget the forest for the trees. It won't let us think that the end of this story is an absolute crapshoot. So here's an extreme example. There's no way we're going to get to the end of Revelation 22 and read, and all this was Larry's dream. What? The whole thing was Larry's dream? That's a long... No, 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 we know that, right? We know how it ends. We know the macro level how it ends, and oftentimes in any given story, we know the micro level of how it ends, and yet it's so faithful to give us intrigue and drama and suspense all along the way while showing us the eternal perspective and the behind-the-scenes look into what's going on. It's multidimensional. Why is that so important for us? Because we so often are very bad at interpreting our own experiences in the same kind of way. We know our own thoughts. We see what's right before us. But oftentimes we're flat and single dimension about our analysis of what's going on. We're short-sighted. We walk by sight and not by faith especially in suffering times, it's easy to think single dimension and skin deep and with the eyes of sight, to forget the big picture and to lose the eternal perspective, to see the circumstances not as man sees it, but as God sees them. So when we read the stories of David, we see his unfair suffering. It's easy as we read them to think, we're going along for the ride, but we know how it ends. We're assured along the way. Unlike how we often go through our own suffering, where it seems so uncertain to us, unfair, maybe like God doesn't see or he's not in it, like it's a crapshoot. David helps us see differently. 
Today we get an example from David that's perfect for this two-dimensional analysis of what's going on, the seen and the unseen. It shows us how to walk by faith and not by sight. Turn to 1 Samuel 21 in your Bibles if you have one with you today. 1 Samuel 21 is the chapter we'll look at. But let's first begin by setting the stage to 1 Samuel 21. The setting is this. David, on the run, alone and desperate. David is on the run, alone and desperate. Back up even further, if we can. Remember that King Saul was the people's choice for the king, a king like the nations they wanted, and so he was. And because of his sin and God's judgment, he is on his way out. There's an expiration date on his throne. Like it or not, despite his clawing and scratching and maneuvering to keep it. David, on the other hand, is God's choice, and he's been anointed. He's on his way in. He's not officially the king yet, but he's the anointed one. It's sure as can be the writing is on the wall. We just don't know when or how. At first, even Saul recognized that God was with David. He celebrated that along with all Israel. Remember, David, the ruddy shepherd boy, was the one who slayed the giant Goliath in chapter 17. From there, Saul, Samuel, sorry, third person, David. From there, David has gone on Saul's mission and had success in whatever battle he's been in. Saul celebrates this with all Israel at first, but then chapter 18 turns from Saul's love for David to Saul's jealousy of David, his hatred, his opposition to David. It's, it's growing. His resentment is growing more and more bitter. So we saw in chapter 18, a couple of weeks ago now, Saul had several plots to take David out. Several plots in that chapter and then as we turn the corner from chapter 18 to chapter 19, we saw that Saul took that plot thing to, to exterminate David. He took it public. He said to all his servants, you get a chance, take out David. It was a stupid move, actually, even politically. It was risky. David was loved and loved by everyone. But nevertheless, it's now very public and clear that David's life is threatened. So in chapter 19, we start seeing this recurring phrase, different forms of it, really. David fled and escaped. David departed. David fled from there. Then David escaped. We'll see it again and again and into our chapter this week. Last week, we saw at the end of chapter 20, Ron showed us that this fleeing and departing got pretty official now Jonathan and David are very certain that Saul is intent to kill David, and so, so David must leave, as in for now, for good. He has to flee. As they say in the movies, he's on the lam now. He's like Dr. Richard Kimball in The Fugitive. He's... He's like the ace of spades in the most wanted deck of cards, right? And this is basically the essence of the whole rest of 1 Samuel. 
David moves about 12 more times after what we'll see today. 12 more times. He's on the move. He has to leave. He flees from there. He departs. That should be staggering in light of the fact that David is the rightful anointed of God. He is God's man. He's the promised one. And it's the anointed that's exiled, the anointed who's on the run, the anointed who's in constant danger of death. In fact, it's remarkable when you just do the math involved in the chapters for how many chapters discuss David's opposition. Remember, we didn't get introduced to David until chapter 16. Chapter 16 is his anointing. Chapter 17, he defeats Goliath. It looks good. And then chapter 18, there are three or so, four or five plots on David's life that goes public by chapter 19. The point of it is this. David's life is threatened for 14 of the last 16 chapters of 1 Samuel. If my math is correct, that's the majority. For most of the story, it's not David the victorious shepherd, warrior, flute player, harp player guy. It's David, the vagabond, on the run and in danger, alone, helpless, unarmed. We'll see in this chapter, no backpack, no food, no weapon. What on earth is going on here? Was Hannah wrong at the beginning of the story when she prayed this professorial kind of prayer about a king who would come and in God's strength he'd rule the anointed one whose horn would be exalted? Did she get that wrong? Did Samuel the prophet miss God's speaking when he laid hands on that ruddy boy in chapter 16? Was that stone in Goliath's forehead a fluke? Has God turned away from his promises? Has he forgotten? Has his plan gone awry? It doesn't look like God's with him at this point, does it? It doesn't look like God's promises remain, let alone are progressing. And it's about to get worse, not better or so it seems from our eyes. 1 Samuel 21 gives us two scenes. Both are about David on the run. Really, this morning, we'll see three scenes. You notice that on your sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin. Well, we've got three points this morning. Two of those are scenes in 1 Samuel 21. A third is a, an unseen scene. That'll make more sense as we come to it. Just tuck it away. Here's a warning up front. 1 Samuel 21 is a difficult passage by anyone's reckoning. It has a lot of head scratchers in it. You'll raise questions in your own mind as we're going through this that I won't answer, and then I'll tell you at the end why we didn't answer them. It's one of those kind of passages. There are a lot of moving parts. It's complex, but it's as simple as this. Two stories, David on the run. The first scene is in the first nine verses. Let's read that. Then David came to Nob, that is, after fleeing from Saul, 
and having to leave Jonathan. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you here alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, Well, the king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread in whatever's here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it's taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. The priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. We could call this first scene, God provides David before the priest. God provides, as David's before the priest in Nob. He flees to Nob some 20 miles away from where Saul was, and he flees to Ahimelech the priest. Think about it, it must have been a terribly strange thing to see David, the captain of thousands, coming alone. No weapon, no armor, no backpack, nothing. David walking alone. Think of seeing President Obama walking down the street in plain street clothes, and there is no Secret Service anywhere. The car, the beast, is nowhere around. There's no helicopter in the air. You don't see guys with the earpieces or sunglasses, and he's just walking alone. That would be a frightful scene. Something went wrong. Maybe Al-Qaeda got the Secret Service, and now here's the president trying to lay low in street clothes and walk down the street like a normal guy. It'd be unnerving. Perhaps that's why Ahimelech is trembling as he comes out to see David, it's not normal. Perhaps also, or maybe instead, Ahimelech knows that David's on the run from Saul. Maybe that's part of his fear. In chapter 19, Saul told all his servants to kill David if they get the chance. Surely that news went to Ahimelech eventually. But regardless of whether Ahimelech is fearful of David because he knows the king has given this execution order or because it's just so weird to see king, uh, the king-elect David, the captain of thousands, 
here alone without armor and without men. He's afraid. It's then that David fabricates this story in verse 2. There's no way around it. It is what you thought it was as we read it. It's a fabrication. David essentially says, Well, I'm alone because uh, I'm on a special mission from the king. No one knows about it. Just me and him. Well, and some other young guys. I've got an elite delta force with me. We're going to meet up later at such and such a place. But this is all black ops stuff. It's deep cover. If I told you about it, I'd have to kill you. You knew that was coming eventually, right? That's just begging to be used here. But why did David make up this story? We're not told. We can imagine some possibilities. It's possible, though not likely, that he doesn't fully trust the priest. I mean, can you trust anyone these days when Saul is, is on the rampage like he is? More likely is, is the possibility that, that David is making sure that Ahimelech will help him. And if he's fully honest, then Ahimelech will say, <laughs> you're on your own, buddy. Come on, move it down the line here. I don't need Saul breathing down my neck. Most likely, David fabricates this story to protect Ahimelech. The story gives Ahimelech plausible deniability, I think is the technical term. It makes the priest not consciously complicit in aiding David, who's who's on the run and wanted. Now we'll find out next week in the next chapter, it doesn't go so well for David or Ahimelech or others. But I think that's probably what's behind David's motive for this elaborate story. He asks for help then, verse 3. Do you have anything on hand? Give me five loaves or whatever's here. Now remember, this isn't Panera Bread Company. It's not like bread is just sitting around. This isn't a bread store. It's the tabernacle. David knows there is bread around. But as the priest makes clear, it's not common bread, verse 4. It's holy bread. The priest is referring to what's called show bread or the bread of the presence. It would be bread that was there as an ongoing memorial, a symbol of God's provision and his presence. As verse 6 tells us here, the bread was to be changed out every Sabbath day. New loaves would be made, and then there'd be the switch. Old loaves come off, and then the priest could eat from those old loaves. That's what David's asking for, and that's what the priest here is suggesting. So luckily, it seems like, in God's providence, he shows up on the Sabbath day, the day the bread is being changed out. But then it gets more complicated. There are head scratchers here. The priest says, verse 4, Well, you can have it if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David says, Oh, of course, always. Whenever I'm on a mission, we keep ourselves from women. How much more when I'm on this Delta Force mission right now? Of course, we're clean. Now, we're not told why the, the priest made this condition upon David and his imaginary men. For one reason why it's curious, the bread was to be eaten by priests and priests alone, according to Leviticus 24. David's not a priest, neither are his imaginary men. So, somehow, we're not told why, apparently, 
the priest, thinks it's okay for David to partake of this bread as if he were a priest. We're not told why, but apparently it has something to do with David's authority. So apparently it was okay that David did this and okay that the priest gave it to him. Why do we know that? Well, because Jesus comments on this passage. The best commentator in all the Bible is actually the Bible, right? And Jesus is the best commentator of the Bible, on the Bible, in the Bible. And here's what he says in in both Luke 6 and in Matthew 12. There there's a story where Jesus' disciples plucked grain as they walked on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees see it and they think, ah, got him. They complain to Jesus, how come your disciples pluck grain or work like a farmer on the day of rest when they, they shouldn't work? And that's when Jesus reminds the Pharisees of this story in 1 Samuel 21. And he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And then he goes on to say, the son of man, referring to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. So it has something to do with authority. Jesus can... Do what he wishes with the Sabbath, and David can do what he wishes with the showbread, something because he's Lord. They're both Lord. Now, we could pick at both those stories for a long time. We could think through what Jesus means about the Sabbath, and, and we can't go into all those details right now. Uh, if we were preaching you know, Luke 6 or Matthew 12, we'd go into more details on that end of the story. But our concern is with 1 Samuel 21, and here's what Jesus shows us about 1 Samuel 21. He apparently has no problem with what David did in 1 Samuel 21. Leave it at that. It's simply about his need and provision. David's hungry, and then he's provided for. He's fed. I think... We should be reminded here of Israel in the wilderness in God's miraculous provision for them. Remember, they fled Pharaoh and his army into the wilderness and then found themselves there without water, without food. What are we going to do? It was then that God began to provide miraculous bread from heaven to eat every day. They called it manna. Similarly, Here's David on the run from Saul. In the desert, dare we say, there's no provision around, and yet here's this bread. It's not common bread. It's holy bread. It's God's bread. He's sustained. He's fed like Israel in the wilderness. God himself did it. When things look the bleakest, God is faithful to his promises. He will provide when it seems like there's no provision that's possible. Even when there's still ongoing threat. Look at verse 7. Ongoing threat. Verse 7 is a parenthetical comment. And it more than hints at a threat going on here at the same scene. A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day at the tabernacle. Detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Number two and number three and number four guy ranked in Saul's people, his house. 
is here seeing David, and David seeing him see David, right there at the tabernacle. That's trouble, isn't it? And he's an Edomite. What's an Edomite doing in the tabernacle? The Edomites are they're of those groups of people that are at war with Israel for the promised land. You know, they're, they're like Amalekites and Ammonites. And, and here, an Edomite, but he's an Edomite who's come on the other team. He's defected, and he serves in Saul's army among his people. There's a threat going on here. We're not told what and why it matters. He'll pop up again the next chapter. And we'll find there in the next chapter, Doeg's threat is not his lurking. It's his hacking. You can read on if you want. Here we're just given this ominous foreshadow. There's Doeg in the corner seeing David. And David sees him. But the narrative moves on. In verse 8, David asks the priest, Have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? Probably not unrelated to just seeing Doeg. There's an Edomite right there. That's Saul's number two or number three, number four guy. Hey, say, do you have a spear or a sword at hand? He has nothing in his hand. He brought neither his sword nor any weapons on this secret mission. That must have sounded strange even to David as it came out of his mouth. It doesn't seem to gel with the first part of the made-up story that he's on this secret mission. He's on a secret mission, and I don't have a weapon. I don't have a spear or a sword. Do you have one? And then he, requires, uh, he explains that the, the Lord's work required haste, and that's why I don't have any weapon. I had to leave in a hurry. We've all seen enough 24 episodes to know that Jack Bauer does never, he never has an empty trunk, right? There's a problem, he opens the trunk, and there's an arsenal in there. There are 15 machine guns in there. Guys who need weapons are usually not without them. That's what David is here. And yet, apparently the priest either believes what David said, this ongoing trumped-up story or um, doesn't bother with it. Goliath's sword is there at the tabernacle. It's one David was quite familiar with, the one he used to chop off Goliath's head. It, it must have been moved there. We're not told how it got there or when it got there, but David must have put it there under the priest's care as some sort of memorial, some sort of token or symbol of the Lord's victory that great day in the battle of Elah. So the priest says, if you'll take that, go ahead, take it. There's none here but that. And David says, oh, there is none like it. Give it to me. It must have been massive. Now why does David want a massive sword? Why does David ask for a spear or a sword? Ron pointed out, I think rightly, last week that when you see Saul described in these chapters, he's never without his spear at his side. He's home watching TV with his spear. It's, it's weird. He's eating dinner with his spear. He's listening to David play music with his spear. And Ron said, I think rightly so, it's a symbol of his Philistine likeness, right? He's a man of those tools, those weapons. He's a man with Philistine-like armor. So why is David asking for a sword? I don't think for the same reasons. What we'll see in the next scene is David has this sword with him and he never uses it. Either David 
sees this sword as just pure defense, if necessary, or he sees this sword as something almost symbolic-like. I mean, think about this. That sword symbolized the message that David had preached throughout 1 Samuel 17 before the battle of Goliath, that the battle is the Lord's. And he will win, not by sword, not by spear, not by might. The battle is the Lord's. If anything symbolized that the battle is the Lord's, it was Goliath's spear, which was conquered by a sling. Now we come to that second scene which David, in which David carries the sword but doesn't use it. Verse 10, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. It says, And David rose and fled that day. Again, another fleeing. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow continue in my house? Here's the second scene. God protects. In the first, God provides. Here in the second, we'll see. God protects as David is before the Philistines. Did you catch that? This is Philistine land. These are Philistines. When it said David arose and fled to Gath, you might think Gath. Did that come up before? Gath is Goliath's hometown. That's where Goliath was from. This is insane. He fled to Gath, to Philistine country. David is the killer of their hometown giant hero. He killed, chopped off the head of Goliath with the sword, a sword that he now wears on his side as he enters Gath. It's not a switchblade or a pocket knife. It's not easily hidden. It's not easily mistaken. On top of that, he's been busy killing Philistines ever since that first one named Goliath. There have been several times since that time, from 17, 18, 19. There are several mentions of David going to battle with Philistines and having great success. So when it says in verse 10, he fled that day from Saul, it's literally he fled that day from Saul's presence. We can only imagine that Saul is breathing down his neck. It tells us not that David is insane to go to Gath, so he doesn't need to fake it. But it was so risky, so threatening. Perhaps Doag was the straw that broke the camel's back. He'd rather go to Gath, the enemy land, than stay in his homeland. 
of which he was the anointed king. It seems like jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. It seems stupid, but it shows instead David's utter desperation. He has to be thinking, maybe the Philistines will take me in. Maybe give me some sort of harbor. Maybe they'll be glad to get Saul's number two. And I can hide out here in safety for a while. Perhaps he's thinking, Saul isn't stupid enough to follow me into Philistine land. Sort of like Wesley and Buttercup as they, they go into the fire swamp, right? They, they go because the king won't go in after them. And they might die in the fire swamp, but they'll surely die if they don't go into the fire swamp. Anyway, it's a desperate situation. He hopes to blend in and gath to go unnoticed, and it seems like he is almost immediately noticed by the king's servants. They say in verse 11, is this not David, the king of the land? Oh, this is one of those, they spoke better than they knew kind of moments, and there have been several of those. Isn't this the king of the land? They don't even say king of Israel, though in a sense that's true, and though in a sense it's not yet true. Saul is the king. Saul doesn't recognize David as the king. And yet the Philistines have heard of David's success in, in such great detail, apparently. They view him not just as the king of Israel, but the king of the land. They weren't speaking prophetically, but they sure spoke better than they knew, and certainly better than Saul knew or was willing to admit. How do they know this is David, the king of the land? Well, they also have heard of that Israeli folk song. Saul has struck his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Again, remember, they know of this from firsthand experience. Chances are good they know people who've died from David's army. Of those 10,000s that David and his men have wiped out in recent days, a large percentage had to be Philistines. So when they recognize David as the king of the land, and when they say this is David who struck down his 10,000s, they're not joining in in that celebratory song. They're mad and afraid. David's a threat. So they report all this to the, to the king. And it's there that it says David is much afraid. Verse 12 says David was much afraid. To my knowledge, this is the only place in First and Second Samuel that says that David was afraid. Oh, it's constantly how Saul's emotions are described. It's constantly Saul's motivation for doing the next thing. Saul was very afraid, and then Saul grew more afraid. It's all over the place with Saul. It's not with David, except here. It shows you that he was really afraid. So afraid, so desperate, so endangered, he resorted to this, verse 13. He changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks on the doors of the gate. Picture that. He's clawing on the gate, carving something maybe, trying to draw something or whatever, but it's nonsense and purposely so. David, the Lord's anointed. 
God's man, the king to be. So afraid, he feigns insanity, spits in his beard and claws on the door, barks at the moon. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Amazingly, it worked. Don't you love those verses at the end? Verse 14, how Achish the king responds. This man is crazy. What are you doing bringing me a crazy man? Do you think we haven't met our quota of crazies? We've got plenty. Right? And you brought one to me? I don't need an extra crazy around here. Get him out of here. I don't care who you think he is. I don't care who he says he is. He's obviously insane. It worked. And then if we read into chapter 2, just a half of a verse, we get another one of those mantras, the chorus. Verse 1, David departed from there and escaped. So again, it worked. What an odd story in the Bible here, isn't it? And just like the previous scene where David misled the priest and ate the bread that was for priests, the holy bread, here we probably also have some nagging questions in the back of our mind, nagging questions that haven't been answered yet. In the earlier section, we could, we could ask and should ask, and you probably did ask, was David in sin to mislead the priest? And here we should ask, and probably you're asking, was it sin when David acted like a madman? And notice we're not given any explanation, no commentary. And we're not given any commentary on the commendability of David's actions in either story. We're not. And that should mean two things for us. Number one, it should mean that neither of these stories should be used as some sort of survival guide, an instruction manual. Here's what you do when you're hungry, lie, lie, lie. And here's what you do when you're arrested and your life's in danger, go crazy. That's not the lesson of 1 Samuel 21. On the other hand, here's the other thing that the silence of 1 Samuel 21 should tell us. When it doesn't commend or impugn David, we should not be too quick to read the story too negatively as if it were a story of mere morals. Here's what to do, here's what not to do. No, it's not one of those stories. Unfortunately, a lot of preachers preach 1 Samuel 21 as this real dark spot in David's life. Oh, there's you know, Bathsheba in what happens later on in 2 Samuel. That's a real dark scene, but here's sure one of them. Here's what some preachers preach when they preach 1 Samuel 21. Some titles I saw of sermons. David falters. Unholy flight. The declension of David. Deception leads to disaster. Or backsliding. I don't think any of those is a fitting title for 1 Samuel 21. Why? Well, because not only do we have Jesus' comment about the first story in the gospel accounts, we also have David commenting on the second story in two different psalms. And they're psalms of praise. Here's the interpretive key to understanding these two stories in 1 Samuel 21. It's 
Praise. Praise to God. And that's the third thing and last thing in your notes. God be praised. God protects. Sorry, God provides. God protects. Thirdly, God be praised. David in the Psalms. Both Psalm 56 and Psalm 34 are written about the time, after the time, about the time of David in Gath and threatened there by the Philistines. Psalm 56, we read the heading. Turn there if you would. Psalm 56. We'll look at two psalms briefly and we'll be done this morning. In Psalm 56, we read the heading, When the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now these headings that you often see in Psalms, uh, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. They're probably not penned by the original author, so in this case, David. But they're really old. They've come down as part of the tradition. And so they shouldn't be ignored. They shouldn't be dismissed lightly. This says in Psalm 56, When the Philistines seized him in Gath. So it's a psalm about that very moment. Picture David looking back as he was, he was cuffed or, or shackled in some way by these servants of Achish, brought before Achish. He looked back, remembered his utter desperation, and yet fought. He preached to himself to trust God. So verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker named Saul oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. But here's the turn when I am afraid I put my trust in you. You hear the resolve? Hear the preaching to himself? In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can Philistines do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps like doeg as they've waited for my life. David goes on and he reflects on the nearness of God's care. Verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Aren't you keeping count of tears? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Again, resolve, preaching to himself, first beginning with his utter desperation, openly confessed, then turning to resolve, preaching to himself in preaching of God's confidence, or his confidence in God. That's Psalm 56. Now look at Psalm 34. One more. Psalm 34. If Psalm 56 was reflecting at the, on that moment of being seized and immediately being rescued, Psalm 34 is more reflection 
after that. After that, what happened in the rescue. It has the heading of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Probably an alternate name or title for Achish. But we know what this is describing. When he changed his behavior before the king so that he drove him out and he went away. Here, David thanks God for the rescue that happened at Gath. And don't miss that. He thanks God for the rescue in Gath. As he looks back on the rescue in Gath, he doesn't think, that was embarrassing, but at least I got through. Well, that was a lucky bit. Glad it's done. As he looks back, he doesn't think, who knew I had it in me? I guess I should be an actor. No. God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Why? Oh, I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Remember, he was greatly afraid. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. What irony! His face in 1 Samuel 21 at the end was that of a madman with spit in his beard, clawing at the door, and he says, they'll be radiant. Those who look to the Lord, their faces shall never have to be ashamed. This poor man cried, And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. What David is showing us, and he does this in so many psalms, is that there are two dimensions going on. There's a human realm. From one angle you can say, I'm hungry, I went and asked the priest, and he gave me some bread. On a human level, you can say, I went to Gath, it was scary as heck, but I acted all crazy, and I got out of there by the skin of my teeth. But from God's perspective, and David knows later on, of course, and thus his praise, God did the rescue. And God rescues sometimes through silly means. He he uses weakness, not strength. If David and Goliath was a story showing us that the Lord saves not by sword or spear because the battle is the Lord's, then we could say 1 Samuel 21 shows us the Lord saves not by spear or by sword. Sometimes he will even use spittle. He can use spittle. He can use spittle. The seen and the unseen. Which one are you staring at? There are two more verses in, verse, in Psalm 34 that we need to talk about. One is in the New Testament. In verse 19 it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Does that sound familiar? Not one of them is broken. 
John 19 quotes this in reference to Jesus and his crucifixion. It was common at a crucifixion for the soldiers to come and break the legs of the man who was slow dying and hadn't yet given up the ghost. They'd break his legs so that he would suffocate and die faster. It was merciful. But when the, when the soldiers came to Jesus, his, he'd already breathed his last. They went to break his legs, but they didn't. And John says... These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. He will keep all his bones. Not one of them shall be broken. It doesn't look like Psalm 34 was predicting anything, like it needed to, it needed to be fulfilled later on. It looks like David was just saying, they were muscling me, man, and the Lord protected me. I didn't even break a bone. I came out of there unharmed. Not one hair fell to the ground. John sees something going on there. This is all too reminiscent, right? These are all too parallel. God's anointed is always opposed by sinful men. God's king is a suffering one. And yet God will protect him in his suffering David protected in his manhandling. Jesus protected even in his crucifixion, which doesn't make any sense unless the crucifixion is part of the plan. That's what John's saying is part of the plan. God was protecting him. Not one bone was broken. They did nothing more to Jesus than what God decreed would be done. Oh, in the gospel accounts, it looks like at the end, Jesus is losing. He's on the losing end. In fact, one-third of each of the gospel accounts focus on Jesus' last week. Did you know that? One-third, by the way, of the story of First and Second Samuel focuses on David on the run. I wonder if that's intentional. But back to Jesus. Even before his last week, the religious leaders... We're scheming again and again. Jesus would say something about his divinity or his kingdom or his kingship or how old he was. He's older than Moses or Abraham. And they would conspire how to put him to death. He's on the run. They're trying to scheme and maneuver and pin him here and there. Sometimes the crowd wants to grab him. And we just read this. And he slipped out through their midst. God's protection. Not time yet. He's on the run, but he's yet under God's constant care and protection, even at the cross. They sought to destroy him, and eventually it looked like they won. So it seemed. The third day, God raised him from the dead, showing that he not only defeated God's political enemies, if that, if that can be such a term. It's not that Jesus defeated the Philistines. It's not that he defeated Saul. Jesus defeated all of God's enemies, including Satan and sin and death. He came to destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We should fear death and even more eternal death that comes after physical death. 
But Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power over death. And he showed us that he has defeated the one who has the power over death because he conquered death. He rose from the dead. And we too might conquer with him. We too might have that that freedom from fear. Our sins can be forgiven. Heaven can be ours. God can be our God. But only through Jesus. That's what the cross is all about. Have you believed, repented? Have you embraced the Savior as your only saving hope? Do you confess him as Lord and Savior and love him? We pray that you do. We want you to. Christian, you might be opposed right now. You might, heck, you might be hungry right now. You'd be on the run. You could feel defenseless. You could be very afraid, alone, forsaken, doesn't matter. That's it, it doesn't matter. We can say with David, what can man do to me? We can say with the Apostle Paul, who who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? God's love in his care, in his protection, his power, in his nearness, is all so far better and weightier than any trial we face, however great. God will provide and God will protect, not often like we think he will or we want him to. Often he does it in surprising ways. He does it in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform That's from an old hymn. Here's another old hymn as I close with this. This is an old hymn you're probably not familiar with. I don't think we've ever sung it at Desert Springs, but it's one that's precious to my family. We've sung it at our kitchen table many a time and often in tears. I think it's so fitting for 1 Samuel 21. Listen to this. What though the way be lonely and dark the shadows fall, I know where'er it leadeth, my Father planned it all. I sing to the rain and the sunshine, I'll trust him whatever befalls. I sing, for I cannot be silent, my Father planned it all. There may be sunshine tomorrow, shadows may break and flee. Twill be the way he chooses, the Father's plan for me. He guides my faltering footsteps, Along the weary way, for well he knows the pathway will lead to endless day. I sing through the rain and the sunshine. I'll trust him whatever befall. I sing because I cannot be silent. My father planned it all. God provides, God protects, God be praised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you show your power and your glory and your nearness in these subversive ways that require faith and not mere sight. So we don't ask this morning for some massive miracle, but for the miracle of faith, encouragement and strength in our hearts 
to sustain us in your ways. We pray to feel your help, to feel your nearness and care, and to know it from your word. Give us a hunger for your word. Fix us in it. May we go to it often. May it renew our minds, strengthen our hearts, and ever direct our thoughts to you, our help in ages past, and our hope for years to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.